Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this. It is Pilot Episodes, the infrequent flying podcast for you aviation enthusiasts. As always, I am joined by our three trepid... What am I going to call you this week? Pilots. There you go. Just pilots. Boring old pilots. It's going to come up with something fancy, but you can stay with pilots. Godders, how are we? I'm good. Not been doing any... Part. Well, no, I did. Have we done the pod last time in... Yeah, you flown the month chip, and I flown the chippy. Uh, well, I mean, uh, it, I mean that's a downgrade from your usual rockets, but okay. That's true. And since then, I've flown in a few 787s out to the US and back, but only ever Have sat you been down at the, the Space Centre in San Dingo? I did a bit of San Diego last week. I was in LA last week. How lovely. Um, How are the other half Colorado holiday? before Christmas. Were you looking Florida. at rockets? I saw a space launch. Let's talk about that later. I saw a space hey, launch. Just that was, just that was be- exciting. Just before we crack on with the aviation stuff, two of my loves combining here. Uh, aviation and, of course, rugby, you're not just an officer in the RAF, not just a high-ranking officer in the RAF, you're also involved with RAF rugby. How was last night? It was excellent, yeah. So as chairman of Royal Air Force Rugby, um, the the men's first 15 were playing Chinna Rugby Football Club out in in Chinna, and uh, it was a really good run-out. We lost by one point, the last kick of the game. Um, but it was fantastic because <clears throat> you must have been livid. How many people did you fire, uh, Godders? You know who won rugby one? Oh, Harky. <laughs> does, the, uh, does the camera pan to your face, Godders, and you're swearing like a trooper? They're all out. You, to, you realize <laughs> yeah. you smile gracefully. As soon as oh. I saw the camera, I went, nothing, nothing to see. Yes, Blight, I immediately nothing. fired everyone in the dressing room, and we've got a whole new team for, uh, for next week. Um, but no, it was really good. And uh, the linkage as well is that in JB's other podcast, Egg Chasers, um, they were playing it live on their uh, YouTube channel. And uh, one of their podcasters, Tim, was um, commentating and uh, doing uh, uh, pieces to camera around the uh, around the pitch. It was good, really good. Now, now we've got a selection of servicemen here. Two of them don't actually follow RF Rugby too closely. How important is the inter-services cut? Because from my point of view, from rugby point of view, it seems like quite a big deal. I mean, I've been keeping keeping tabs on what the Army are doing, the artillery played engineers last night. I've been keeping tabs on the Navy. I just, I've got a feeling, you know, because it's post-COVID, this inter-services cup is going to be pretty, it's going to be pr- pretty spicy. It's going to be huge. We're playing the, uh, the Navy at... Um, Ealing Trail Finders in Landon. 
um, in the inter-services and we're playing the army at Kingshome, Gloucester's ground, uh, out, in, out in Gloucester. Um, and then Army versus Navy at Twickenham, which uh, I'm also going to. So, um, yeah, it should be exciting, actually, because we haven't played it in the last two years, now, obviously, for COVID reasons. Now, Air Force did all right a few years. Sorry, boys, I will talk to you guys in a second. Uh, Air Force did all right. Well, you did ask us a question, but God has just jumped in. That yeah. is the, that is a Air Marshal's prerogative. Go on then, Doug. Did, <laughs> did you ever pay attention to any of the inter-services stuff? Yes, but mostly, and I think I probably speak, uh, to answer your question in all seriousness, of course it is serious, and the guys that are doing that are playing, I think uh, you and Goddard will uh, agree, at a very high level, and it's fantastic to watch, but it's also, uh, I think, for, I would say the majority, I've got to be careful here, but the majority of the forces, a fantastic social event. So, you know, many's the time that we will get together and, uh, you know, watch the Army-Navy. Um, and the trouble is, is by the time the social, which starts many hours before, um, has taken effect, it's questionable <laughs> about how much of the game you either A, C, or B, remember. Yeah. <laughs> Parky, were you ever interested in, in, in inter-services? Uh, I mean, if I'm honest, not really. But I mean, I, I, I'm not massively into rugby, to be honest. But I do recall from what Dunk said, going to Twickenham and seeing, I think, England, Scotland. And yeah, we, we definitely had a few before the game. Dunk was right I mean, for once. And, uh, <laughs> I, I have vague recollection. I mean, it's a great atmosphere. And uh, and uh, it, it's awesome that it's, you know, I'm sure the standard is, you know, well up there. It must be awesome. Yeah, you do find out some weird things about the forces following the rugby. So you'd, everyone would assume that Royal Marines would be excellent. And they are, except for they're all too fit to have a front row. It seems to be the RAF get a lot of strong lads from weapons loaders, as do the Fleet Air Arm, who provide an awful lot of the uh, the Royal Navy team. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. You're probably about right. Yeah, well, they haven't got the, one... the uh, they haven't got the um, uh, the gun running show that they they used to do up at the Edinburgh ta- Tattoo. They don't do that anymore, do they? Do they not? What a shame! I don't think so. so they could all sort of join the rugby team now. Well, yeah, but do you know, in that. In that gun running thing, everyone lost fingers. That was the thing. I was about to say that. You knew when someone was in the Navy gun running team because there were you know, three fingers on one hand. Oh, good God. But that was quite a spicy sport, that one. Yeah, well, it, was. it was called the field gun race, wasn't it? Yes, that's what it was called. There was a BBC field documentary about race. it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, as you say, there was, I think probably safety's got in the way of it, sadly. What do you say about that, Godders? <laughs> oh, I don't know whether it has. I, th- I thought it was still going. <laughs> <laughs> safety's paramount right stop safety that people, first are, people are losing fingers we don't want to be doing any of this it's, it's very unsafe so I, I, I just like the air master's done a very the... very good risk assessment and would like to... <laughs> I yeah. think it's funny that the uh, the person who trains all of the young pilots in the Royal Air Force <laughs> is the one going self and safety gone mad <laughs> I'm writing to the Daily Mail uh, don't do exactly. gun running anymore and drop wheels on their heads yeah. <laughs> anyway Duncan, how are you? I'm great, thanks. What have you been up to? Well, you know, so at work, so work-wise, uh, I've been very involved in, and I think I've mentioned it before, the Prefect Basic Flying Training, which is we're, we're trying to, because we're trying to get as many uh, of our young pilot trainees through to the front line as soon as possible, we've started as uh, as well as doing training uh, on Texan at RAF Valley. We've started doing the same 
training, but on the prefect, um, ah. therefore uh, saving time and uh, and then getting those guys to the front line a little bit quicker. So boosting numbers to the front line. That's the the aim of the game. So I've been sort of very immersed in that in the uh, in the last few days. We've got a new course starting uh, in a few weeks' time, so it's getting ready for that. And in doing so, going and flying some of the sorties we do that for. Our little prefect, which is a relatively basic aeroplane, trying to do relatively advanced stuff with it, um, is uh, is a quite good fun, uh, and it's b it's quite challenging. So, I've been often done a, a sortie doing that, which is uh, time on target, low level stuff, which is uh, it's good fun. It's great. The prefect is pre Texan, is it not? Yeah, it's uh, it is pre Texan. If we were in the traditional system, however, because People are trying to think outside the box. And because of the performance of the prefect, which is not quite as good as the Texan, but it's nearly there. Um, they're saying, right, why can't we do basic flying training, which they do on the Texan? Why don't we do that on the prefect? So it's it's taking the prefect flying to a different level and trying to uh, give the, the trainees uh, enough because of the lack of both performance in in relation to the Texan, but also uh, of te- the technicality of the aeroplane and the sort of it's not really a particularly military aeroplane in that, you know, it's got no ejection seats. It's not a tandem. It doesn't feel like a military aeroplane as such. Mm. Trying to put a, uh, a basic flying training course together, which produces the correct product at the end of it is uh, is a challenge that's a quick question about the texan very yeah very quickly how closely related or how alike are your texans next to the rather sexy ones that we see occasionally banded around which are painted gray and got bombs hanging off them and do the ones which they market as the low-cost replacement for ground attack aircraft how closely linked yeah, are they? Are they the same aircraft or are they completely yes, different? Yes, they are. So there's a few differences. So I've flown both. Uh, the, the one that you're talking about is called the Wolverine. That's it. Uh, and um, the, the difference is well, it's got the same engine in it. Um, the engine in, a, in the Texan that we have is a flat rated. And it's effectively, the engine can produce 1,600 horsepower. Uh, but what they do is they, they restrict it. Uh, to 1,200 at sea level, such that as it climbs, they use that extra power. So it's it's got um, the same performance all the way up to, and I can't remember exactly what it is, but maybe 15,000 feet, which means you don't lose that performance as you climb. And that tries to give it – they're trying to get jet-like performance from it, um, but with the uh, uh, the, the, the effectively the, the – the cost of a turboprop, which is much cheaper to to run. That's quite clever. So you then uh, the Wolverine itself, then it, it just has all of that sixteen hundred straight away. Um, it's still when you put weapons on it, it's relatively underpowered when you compare it to a jet aircraft. Uh, but the other thing it's got, which the, the the Texan that we have doesn't have, is it has a 1553 data bus, which is effectively the weapon system that allows it to talk intelligently uh, to those weapons to make sure um, that they the targeting systems can work uh, work properly. And that the Texan that we have for training doesn't have that, just has a, you know, a simulation of it. That sounds pretty cool. I like that. I like that. Parky, how are we? How are you flying it? Are you out of your winter hibernation? 
yeah, just just beginning to come out of hibernation. You know, I'm sort of dusting down the straw. Uh, I think hopefully by the end of this month, I'll be uh, getting everyone in a spit, which will be lovely. Uh, but I get my sort of uh, flying fix mainly uh, every Friday when uh, my number two boy, James, who was on a previous podcast. Yes. He's now at Shawbury. So he's uh, he's on the helicopter and he's utterly loving it. He's absolutely and just, you know, just hearing his, uh, you know, his energy and just the fun he's having it. It's hard work, but it, it seems a really cool course those boys are doing. Far better instructors, especially the last guy he flew with at Cranwell. Um, but he's uh, he's really loving it and uh, and enjoying the helicopter stuff. So it's just just great to kind of. I mean, I, I know you you boys because of the Harrier, you did a little sort of uh, itty bitty course at uh, at Shawbury yourselves. Was that on the Gazelle, I guess, back in the day? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. But it it just seems just to be a a, a great uh, you know real hands-on thing that you're flying but he's he's getting it you know he's sort of hovering around and you know landing the thing and uh that must be quite a a cool instructor next name but no he's he's having a blast uh we we oh. went on a visit to to uh we went on a visit to shawbury in my last job actually to go up and see how they did their training and everything it was flipping brilliant and you're right parky the um they're airbus helicopters that they fly out there there's two yeah. different types it's of called work, the, but... the juno i think but you're right it's the same as a a police or an air ambulance, you're a yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, so we we went in the simulator and, um, you know, because I'd done the gazelle time, I thought, wow, this would be easy. Actually, it was a little bit harder than I remembered. But what was funny was... Is that like the Satman? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was sat next to um, the rear admiral that I worked for and he, he had thousands of hours on helicopters. He'd uh, had flown seeking, I think, for most of his time. And <laughs> when he... Uh, so I'm sat next to him and he comes along and tries to land on the ship and completely smashes into the side of it. And uh, I went, well, I'll give it a go. I took off from the ship, flew it around the place. And actually, I was coming alongside this. So he smashed into the side of a carrier. And I came alongside this. It must have been a Type 23 with this tiny little landing deck at the back. And it was coming in really nicely. And I was cracking it until he leaned over and pushed the stick when I, about when I was about five feet from landing and toppled over the side. Um, and I just think he couldn't right, cope with things. the fact that I was going to land it. And he two, two things. A, it was the Queen Elizabeth, not a Type 23 destroyer. Yeah. So the deck was uh, was bigger than eight football pitches. Yeah, that uh, was the one he was. He landed on <laughs> or crashed into. Yeah. My one was a Type And secondly, 23. no one touched the stick, did they? That's in your mind. He touched the stick and then I crashed. <laughs> Every crash I've ever had, it was someone else's fault. <laughs> Even when you were on your own. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It was the wind, it was yeah. the wrong size runway, yeah. all these sorts of things. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Just on the... Um... But, but but the simulator, everything that they had there was brilliant. I'm not surprised James is really enjoying it. Yeah, yeah I think, I mean, they, they it's a big setup there. I mean, a lot of uh, aircraft, they're sending pictures, and there's just dozens of helicopters all sort of floating around, you know, and, and it's a, a massive wave, but... Uh, you know, I think it's just serviceable and, uh, you know, fingers crossed you'll finish uh, November. You know, it seems to be on time and uh, really good. You know, it, oh, so it's quite a long old course then? Yeah, it's nearly a year. Yeah, they. I think it's sort of split into two bits, sort of more, I guess, you know, learning to fly the helicopter and then operating thing a little bit more tactically. But, uh, you know, he's coming up to um, uh, engine out landings in the helicopter, which... Uh, yeah, I imagine it's quite interesting. Did you do that did stuff it, when you did the uh, the Harrier yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Auto rotation. Um, yeah, you did do it. Yeah. A little bit. 
Yeah, that, not that really was one of the best in the Harrier, think... though, was it? It's a quite pointless in a way. Oh, no, I definitely auto rotated in the Harrier every now and again. <laughs> normally, normally when I tried to do a slow loop or something. <laughs> well, hey, here's a quick question. So, as a dad, and knowing what you know about flying, do you do you ever worry about that? No, no. You know, I, I, you, you you just don't do. I, I don't know why. Got... Well, particularly when he was taught by the best, Parky. <laughs> I'm worried about that trip quite a lot, to be honest. Yeah, for, for the for the listener who doesn't realise the uh, the last trip that uh, my lad did at, uh, at Cranwell, which was bizarrely the last ever 57 Squadron Army slaughtering, yeah. because they've stopped doing it, was my lad and Duncan Mason. Wow, yeah. which is just bizarre. Well, I'm hoping to go and see him soon because we've just been uh, sort of planning, right, where are we going to land away for the for these courses? You know, part of the, the course is, is landing away and doing uh, trips to uh, to different places. And uh, Shawbury's up there, so I'm hoping to see James uh, relatively soon. Now, okay. James, James is going to Apache, is that right? Or could he be posted any helicopter? Uh, well, yeah, it's it's mainly Apache. The, the, the army are just swapping. They, they're going to an E model, which is a... You know the sort of the latest equivalent to the army one. So some of the boys at the moment are doing their conversion to Apache instead of Middle Wallop. They're doing it in Vegas, which must what? be awesome. And there's a it's few boys form. who are even going to do their first tours out there. Oh my um, So there's, it, you know, it's obviously when they then bring these newer models back. James will then be fingers crossed going. I think he wants Apache. They have got. Is it the Wildcat? Wildcat's yeah. cool. Those as well, but it's. Uh, I think the the Army Echo is, is you know ninety percent Apache. Uh, it's the sort of the uh, the, the the main the main uh, type they got. I've got to say, where would, they, where would they be doing it in Vegas? Ooh, I'll find out. I can't I can't think of any Army airfields out there. Yeah, I, I'll Google that whilst we uh, whilst we carry I th- on. I think they're being dummied into it, and it's in Alaska somewhere. <laughs> or uh, yeah, come out to Vegas, North Dakota. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Now, just on the Rotary wing stuff, um, I can see why it would be, be excited. I was reading an article the other day, an interview, I should say, with Nimrod Crews, and I thought it was really interesting because they pointed out that um, for a lot of pilots, a lot of serving uh, Air Force staff, you don't really deploy or you don't see that much um, active service, whereas they were saying that they did active missions pretty much every day. You know, It never stopped. I think it's probably the same for the Rotary the rotary wing boys too because especially if you're, if you're in search and rescue and that kind of thing you're pretty much always doing real life missions day in day out yeah i'm uh, I, you know from my perspective when i left lossy mouth they were just putting in the p8 hangers um and uh, p8 is up there now i think they've got what is it nine aircraft now i think those guys are pretty busy with, they are. Uh, um you know doing operational missions on a on a fairly regular basis um, and certainly back in the Nimrod day, um, you speak to any of the guys who, who lived up there and actually there's, uh, there's Nimrod guy, uh, ex-Nimrod guy works with me at the moment. Um, you're right. And when they were hunting those submarines, it did sound like a, you know, it's proper cat and mouse mission, putting the sonar boys in the right area, you know, listening out for them, uh, understanding whether, you know, they were picking up something on one of them, whether they had to move their, uh, uh, what they were doing. Um, so I think you're right. And, and search and rescue as well, completely take my hat off to those guys in terms of the sort of the weather that they fly and the, uh, um, the way they get out and rescue as many people as they can. And, but, you know, having done a little bit of hovering in and around uh, a ship on a simulator badly, as I just said, 
you know, how they do that at night on a pitching deck with masts. Yeah. And all of those sort of things. Brilliant. Yeah. Legends. Now, um, I'm just going to nip in there because uh, actually there's a question that we got that's that's pertinent to this. Ha, go on. Uh, well, first of all, there's a little sort of for those that uh, are listening uh, I, I was going to say for the first time or, or, or on recent pods, but who am I kidding? We've only got two listeners. So if either of you can't remember the, uh, <laughs> the, the pod that we did uh, live from the from Farnborough, we spoke about um, we spoke um, about that uh, the Nimrod and uh, looking into that sub hunting. And there was a really fascinating, uh, f- fascinating bit in that. So if you're looking for uh, past episodes to listen again to, then that's uh, perhaps for you. But there's a question. That was actually, Stu, wasn't it? Stu, yeah. Stu Butler. Yeah, it was. Yes, yeah, Stu Butler. And uh, talking about that, which was uh, which was brilliant. Um, but uh, you've mentioned search and rescue there. And we've got a, a question. Now, God has, has handed the Twitter question sphere to, to me this evening because he's had a small technical failure. I won't do nearly as good a job, but I'll I'll, I'll do my very best. So Ralph uh, at Ralph dash e dash s um says search and rescue exclamation mark when i was a little when i was little we lived near raf watershim and my hero was the man looking out the side of the yellow sea king as it went over he waved back occasionally i don't think any of the guys ended up in one but any tales or dits would be interesting thanks now you, you know you're, you're right god as you've just spoken about search and rescue and um and the amazing job uh, that they did and i think you know probably I'm right in saying that everyone was, you know, so disappointed that the RAF search and rescue didn't continue. Those yellow uh, helicopters were, well, you know, a saviour for many, many people. And uh, I think it's a shame that 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 um, that it got civilianised. But hey, them's them's the times. But um, anyone got any tales of search and rescue? Well, I, so I, I'm going to ask Parky about Watersham actually, because um, were you based at Watersham, Parky? No, uh, on the S4, there. I was uh, Lucas and Vildenraff, but we I went to my, my last phantom trip. I landed at Wadisham, so, you know, but, you know. No, I was just, I was just kind of wonder, wondering what the sort of relationship with the guys at, uh, at the place was. But uh, <laughs> my overriding memory of um, search and rescue helicopters was, A, being massively relieved when they turned up because you do is it it's once a year isn't it you do a dinghy drill yeah so i managed to get in a cycle where it was the coldest part of the year so you'd be oh. turfed into the sea in january somewhere um try and bounce off the water because your hands turned into boxing gloves as soon as you were in but you'd be bailing out your dinghy the waves are up and down because it was never it was never that nice and then you'd hear the little chopper sound in the distance and these things would turn up and you'd be like yes here we go but then, depending on when you got thrown out of the boat, they'd go to the. I think they'd go to the upwind person first. And if you were downwind, you knew you had about another twenty minutes or half an hour. They pick people up and then deposit them back on the ship. Um, but my overriding memory is of fighty um, winchmen at the end of the uh, at the end of the winch. Winchmen are they the ones at the end of the winch, or are they the ones operating the winch? Um, you know what I mean? Because they would come <laughs> the winter or the into the water. They're going. They're doing the you know hand up the winch e, and they'd be doing hand up and down, and then they come in. You know, you've got the sea starts boiling around you with the downdraft of the, uh, the helicopter. Your raft's moving around a bit, and uh, they'd come in waist deep. You'd, you'd see them stop their hand, and the guy on the, on the operating the winch would stop the winch at that point, 
and then the helicopter would move them in. So sometimes they'd come in at you know reasonable speed, depending on how fast the or how uh, slowly the uh, the helicopter was going. And you could see this bloke dressed in all of his gear, and it was normally a bloke with a big helmet on. And in order to grab hold of you, would do this massive left hook or a right hook around the dinghy and then grab it. And then there was this massive kerfuffle and a scuffle whilst he tried to get the right way up. You presented him with what they were called lifting beckets. So these bits on the, uh, um, on the life jacket that you would hand to them, they would hook on to that bit. And then latterly, they'd put a little strop around your, uh, uh, underneath your arms and a strop around your legs as well, give them the up, and then you, uh, uh, and then you go on up. But it was always a little bit fighty, uh, that, uh, that bit in the water, I remember. Or maybe it was just me. No, you were right. And what's great is the detail that you remember there, which is brilliant. Um, the, uh, but you're right. It was fantastic to uh, to actually then end up getting winched out and, and up to the helicopter. And again, I don't think it happens uh, very much anymore. Parky, have you got any uh, tales of uh, tales of being rescued from anywhere? Uh, no, I mean, it, exactly as God has said, you just floated in your dinghy. <clears throat> and it was like sort of little chirpy chickens or birds, wasn't it? Sort of me, 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 pick me, but hoping that you would uh, yeah. point out first. And I can remember just just that sort of as you're getting winched up, the sort of the the massive, or the the smell of the uh, of the jet engine is just great, very cool. Uh, yeah, you brought it back. It's the, do you remember the warmth of the jet engine as well as you were being winched up? Was always one of those. Ha! Ah, <laughs> I'm almost on the boat having a bowl of soup yeah. or whatever they gave you at exactly, the end. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, we had um, search and rescue at Lucas when I was uh, first joined the F4, and uh, you know I think. Definitely, you know, massive mutual respect for those boys. You know, I think we were doing such a different thing, the fast jet to the to the helo world. And, uh, you know, we definitely sort of, you know, they, they were lots of, you know, 24 hours. You know, it was a bit like just being on quick readiness alert on the jets. You know, they were permanently, you know, doing wacky hours and stuff. And, you know, they, you know, they, they definitely put some long shifts in those boys, but they, they were cool. They were they were great. And, uh was there an outfit out in Cyprus that you... Yeah, there was, wasn't there, that we used to do dinghy drills on the Reds out there, uh, Dunk? Putin Raw with 84. That's it, yeah, yeah. yeah. 84 Squadron. Yeah, def def definitely sort of, um, yeah, gone on well with those guys. Barky, cool. is it quick readiness alert or quick reaction alert? Well, I guess it's... Uh, <laughs> it probably is quick reaction, isn't it? Yeah, yeah quick reaction. Just, I don't know. <laughs> it probably is, it is. Around about 30 years. And I'm yeah, just I, wondering... I only did it for 30 years. Well, we just call yeah. it QRA. You yeah. Know. Quaking reaction, reaction alert. <laughs> so Q is actually what we called it. <laughs> so it sounds like I, I might be that, the only man here. guys are busy as well. Sounds like I might be the only man here that have actually used the services of the rescue helicopter in real life. Yeah, sounds like works. sounds no, like you guys true. all drilled it. So, um, oh, I'm from Hladidno. So first, first things first. Yeah, huge thank you to those guys because they're absolutely integral to almost any seaside town where you get a bunch of um, people from inland who think that they can swim or want to go fishing out by oil rigs on lilos and all sorts of things. So you know, you, <laughs> you always see, see those guys. Was but that I, you? Uh, no, I, mine's more embarrassing, actually. We went on a school expedition across Scotland, kayaking, and we had these, like, metal poles, because part of the part of the paddle was on some fairly shallow rivers, so you use the poles instead of paddles, so you can pole along. And you also use these poles to um, strap your, kayak, your canoes together, make a rudimentary sail, and away you go. So two... 
So two uh, canoes to each sort of rig, if you like. So we get onto Loch Ness. I don't know if you've ever been on Loch Ness, but it's bloody massive. It is absolutely enormous. <laughs> and we start, you know, we start going along and the weather turns. Now, I would say that these waves were something like four foot, which doesn't sound very big. But when you sat down, they're bloody huge. And one of the boys panicked and they turned their kayak sideways. When you turn your si- sorry, canoe sideways, it starts taking on water and then all these poles started bending. And one of the flotation things disappeared and then half of the canoe is now starting to sink and the other half is kind of keep keeping up so we managed to paddle to to the side and thankfully the boys managed to paddle to the side but unbeknown to us in the meantime someone else who was watching phoned the helicopter so they flew out they hovered over us we had uh search and rescue boats around this and all sorts it was great well did you get picked up by them did they win no so uh, they would have I think the helicopter came out as a precaution. They would have picked us up on, up, uh, up on the boat, but we managed to get to the shore anyhow. But the bloody Loch Ness is huge. It's absolutely enormous. Well, it's about 60 it miles. It is massive. Long. Yeah. About 60 but it's, what, it's wide, though. It's, uh, it's over a mile wide, isn't it? Yeah, isn't yeah. It? Uh, More than that. Like, isn't it the largest body of fresh water in the, uh, in the UK? It is. Yeah. It most yeah. certainly yeah. is. Yeah. But I'm afraid I, I trump you, JP, because I did get picked up for oh. real. For real, uh, for real. Well, we were on. Hang on, um, did you did you did you run out of energy or, uh, riding your bike? <laughs> no. Hypoglycemic. Yeah. <laughs> Get the helicopter out. It was. It was they they didn't that would have up. been fighty. That would have been a massive windmilling dunk. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it, it, basically grabbing the winchman and uh, and. No, it was an underslung load of snacks that they brought out for me. And <laughs> dropped off. <laughs> no, it was. Um, uh, we were doing some hill walking in Snowdonia, and uh, one of the girls with us went over and broke her ankle. Just Ooh. went over on her ankle. We were up on one of the ridges. I can't remember which one. Uh, and so it was a beautiful day, uh, but the, uh, the the yellow Wessex pitched up and um, hovered us above. Hovered above us. And I guess they were on a you know a quiet day because uh, the winchman came down. They winched the the girl up with the, with the ankle, and he said, "Where are you guys all going?" I said, "Well, you know, we're going to camp at this point over here." Showed him on the map. He said, "Do you want a lift?" He was like, "Oh yeah, we dig a lift." <laughs> so we all got winched up into the helicopter, and they they then took us down and uh, and dropped us off uh, at the edge of this mountain lake in the wow. middle of nowhere. So I've, and, I've I've been in the Wessex. I've never been in the Sea King. They used to part the Wessex on the promenade in Hadidno every Sunday. Yeah. This was well, really this was cool. a Wessex as well. This was a Wessex. So it was... Uh, it I, was... Think I've, I think I've used it before, but there was a brilliant phrase because I did about 100 hours in the Wessex in the left-hand seat when I was holding, waiting to go to... Uh, um, what was it? To After Cranwell before basic flying training. And it was down at Benson. They used to strip all the Wessex down and put them back together again. And I was holding with the unit test pilot there. <laughs> Trevor Wood. He had 5,000 hours Wessex. Um that's wow. a lot. And uh, I heard this awesome phrase where one of the pilots said, hovering a Wessex is like trying to hover a council house through the upstairs bathroom window. <laughs> <laughs> what a great uh, what a great machine, though, that is. Which yeah. I thought was brilliant. But it was a great my, my story. loved flying a Wessex. I can remember a trip in a Wessex. We were in Cyprus doing uh, F4 gunnery out there. And the boss and a few of us, he went, boys, we've got an offer. And it, yeah, it was it 84 Squadron, did you say, Dunk? The, uh, yeah, helicopter with 84. Well, those boys took us and we landed the Wessex on the uh, USS Saratoga. 
mm-hmm. and then just watched probably for about four hours the Tomcats launching and uh, and going into the trap, which was utterly brilliant. And then flew back to uh, flew back to Akrotiri. Wow, that's I mean, I've, I've got a picture somewhere, but it's kind of cool. All these Tomcats. And at the end of this sort of line, there's this funny little Wessex, which was that. Now, you could see the Americans go, that's a weird-looking helicopter. <laughs> they would oh. never design that helicopter, would they? No, that looks <laughs> yeah. too weird. You were, it doesn't look cool enough. You went on the Saratoga. How long ago was that? 1987, 88, something Christ. like that. Christ. So that, you must have got that right before it retired. Because that was, that's yeah, a, it was that was a class of aircraft carrier just before the Nimitz. That's a, is that a forest? I don't know what it is. Maybe I don't know, but it's, it's one before the Nimitz. It's that's, a, that's an old ship. It, it was. It was JB, how old awesome. were you in eighty eight? Eighty eight. I was four. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Well, I don't think there's you should grandpa, go there. And there's grandpa on his uh, aircraft carrier in Cyprus. I, I would be surprised. <laughs> I would be surprised if that was a Second World War machine. Parky or the aircraft carrier. <laughs> Um, I'm going to carry on with the questions because there's a few here. Now, uh, you know, normally we don't need to encourage Goddess to talk. Um, but uh, in this particular case, we've had a couple of requests. Clearly, he hasn't been talking enough. Uh, and so we've definitely got at least two. One from at Matt Key, Matthew Key, has uh, asked for an intro to Goddess's new day job would be good. Mm-hmm. And also Jim at Weed have hedgehog um says update on Goddard's junior rugby career how he's seen the light and left the uh the stripy fiends from leicester for the usa uh, and oh and the uniform for space command so uh there's a bit of rugby a bit of uh, a bit of uh, what's going on with Goddard's both senior and junior uh, and i think probably there's been a few questions about the uniform as well which probably we can all comment on because uh, it's not just Space yeah. Command, I think. Oh, oh, look at that. Well, that's interesting. I'll keep it short. So Goddard's Jr. is currently seeing if he's going to get a contract somewhere. Um, he was with the Houston Sabres. got rid of all the players when they came bottom of the league last year in, the, in America. Because they got rid of um, all of the other um, teams were full. So he's still awaiting a contract, but um, actually now looking to go to University next year. Um, in my day job, is flipping brilliant. So... UK Space Command, the reason we came along, I always use the aircraft carrier analogy, actually, having just talked about aircraft carriers. You wouldn't put an aircraft carrier in an operational environment without firstly understanding that environment and secondly being able to protect and defend that aircraft carrier. And so it's the same in space. Space has become a lot more contested and congested. The the congested stats are kind of cool. In the year 2000, there were around about 750 active satellites. There had been a lot more launched since 1957 when Sputnik went up. Um, But the active ones, by the year 2010, there were 1,000. So in 10 years, it had gone up 250. Um, In 2020, so um, over double the amount that were already up there were launched. By July last year, um, 1,500 had been launched. And by the end of the year, over 3,000 had been launched as well. So you see exponential in terms of exponential in terms of um, how much stuff is up there. So it's busy. You need to understand what's going on. And then contested, anyone seeing the newspapers about Russia shooting a missile um, in November last year and destroying one of their satellites, creating a huge debris field? Um, And if you've ever seen the film Gravity, which uh, all of this stuff could happen, it talks about the Kessler effect. 
which is debris, creating debris, creating debris as it hits more stuff, um, that sort of thing can happen. So uh, yeah, we're all about um, looking out for these things, looking out and understanding what's going on up there. We've got our own, at the moment, huge satellite communication satellites, the um, Skynet satellites. Um, and sometimes it gets a little spicy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So they've given us um, a bunch of money to go and buy some new capability uh, in terms of looking into space, understanding space, um, some space control type stuff, um, and some um, future uh, satellite communications. And so whenever it was, 31st of March last year, there were six of us. Um, right now, we've got about 470 of us. And uh, yeah, we're on the build. So we reach our initial operating capability by um, in April this year. So it's really exciting. It's fantastic. I get to speak to US Space Force, the Australians, French, Germans, Canadians, um, New Zealanders, I, I, an absolute ton of stuff through NATO. Um, it, it's fascinating. I love it. So my first question is, who on earth thought it was a good idea to call satellite skynet after the terminator i mean i would have thought that'd be the one name that that, that you'd avoid <laughs> skynet skynet came so the satellite skynet was there first before the terminator movies came out no was it really yep there we go i, I take it all back then now so the question is are oh, flipping terminator movies why would they possibly have named it that Exactly. What did they know? Uh, the, the the other thing. What do is, they know? It's classified. I can't tell you. What is the? I mean, what what is the major concern for space force now? Is it things like space debris? Now, that sounds very trivial, but it does sound like um, it is an increasing problem. And how are you going to sort that? Yeah, definitely. Well, definitely. The the um, funny enough, our vision is to make space safe, secure, and sustainable for all generations. And the sustainable bit is of making sure that Russia and uh, people like that shooting satellites, exploding them, and, uh, and creating debris. So um, the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office 
have just got a motion tabled at the UN for a discussion and various committees on international rules in space so that we can get to a point where people um, uh, are acting responsibly in space. Because when you look at what Elon Musk, what uh, Jeff Bezos are doing, they're trying to get to the moon again, trying to get to the Mars, you, and almost every single part of our daily lives, we... Um, we're using some sort of space-based service, normally a GPS-type service. Uh, I think signal of that is um, traffic lights, banking, emergency services, all of these sorts of, uh, different sorts of things. And so, you know, ensuring that space does stay accessible for everyone is a huge deal. So for us in the UK, we're working really closely with the UK Space Agency, the uh, civilian side of it. We're doing the, uh, the military side and working closely together to uh, to make sure it stays that way. It does sound fascinating, God, as it's uh, it's brilliant. I, and I guess someone's asked the Russians the question, why have you done that then? Because it does seem, you know, I know it's very naive sort of sounding question. But doesn't sa- It does sound quite irresponsible. We're just going to fire a missile up. I guess that is, is that, uh, you know, positioning and uh, postulating? Yeah, I think it's all, it, 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 I think it's a little element of... Um, no, um, yeah, I think I think it's exactly that, Dunk. You know, it's it's. Hey, look, we've got this capability. Um, you know, as they do with an awful lot of different things. You see North Korea to less testing bullet missiles and those sorts of things at the moment. It's a a show of capability, so that um, you are aware of these things. And uh, and you know, so ultimately, our job is to keep everything safe up there anyway and it is all about diplomacy before you even get into a uh, in, into any shooting I, I bet you it is uh, i bet you can't tell us well i was going to say the half of it but i imagine 99 percent of it it must be uh, it must be really interesting um it's one... super fascinating well it's brilliant it genuinely is will we ever get a sovereign launch capability over here yeah definitely so um this year actually we're looking at there's uh shetland outer heads uh, Sutherland in Scotland, um, and what is Spaceport Cornwall? I've been down to the team down there. Melissa Thorpe is, uh, you know, she was brilliant showing us around. Um, the one in Cornwall, and we've got an RAF pilot flying with Virgin Orbit. So Virgin Orbit is a, uh, they fly Cosmic Girl, it's 747 Virgin 7 rocket underneath the right-hand wing. Um, and that rocket is a satellite delivery system. So that will take off, fly to wherever the launch position is, basically go into a fire launcher one off. That goes into the satellite into the areas that they're supposed to be. Um, and then uh, Cosmic Girl comes back, lands, jobs are good. I think it's flipping brilliant. Yeah, that's amazeballs. Uh, tell me about the economics of this, right? So we're launching rockets, presumably, to get satellites in space from Cornwall or where else it may be, Shetland. How economical is that compared to just paying uh, SpaceX to do it? Well, that's exactly the point. You know, um, Virgin Orbit have already proven they can do it in various places around the world. I mean, that's the advantage of being able to take your launch system with you. Um, And so uh, it's not entirely reliant on customers over here. And for the vertical launch, for the the guys doing it by rockets, very much like SpaceX up and around the Scotland area, um, you know, they're... They've got a business plan. They've got investors. Um, and ultimately, it is not just British satellites that they'll be launching. If they can get their price points down, exactly as you say, then they'll be over the world. So, um, you know, it's a standard commercial market. You know, I think it's brilliant. Uh, um, do, are the Virgin Rockets think reusable? The, yeah, go on. Are the Virgin Rockets reusable? No, not the no, not launcher one. There's a couple of companies looking at reusable. 
at the moment. Um, I'm trying. We met a company. I'm trying to remember the name out in Florida, actually, where they're 3D printing their rocket. Wow. Um, and uh, will be reusable as well. But SpaceX have led the way. And actually, we talk about aviation books. There's a couple of brilliant books out there. Um, one that is a really, really good read for anyone is called Space Barons. Um, and that is about uh, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, uh, it was Paul Allen before then Richard Branson took over the the, uh, the Virgin Galactic side of things. Um, another one's called Liftoff, which is a lot more detail on uh, on Elon Musk and, and how they got there. And it wasn't easy. You know, he formed SpaceX I mean, in 2002, I think it was. A lot of failures first before they actually got there. And you talk about being economical. He, You know, they were minutes away essentially days away from pulling the plug on it now what are the more outlandish ideas out there for space so i'll, I'll give an example of one which i heard the, the other day which i really like which is basically keeping uh, stores up in space say a bunch of humvees or a bunch of um you know, a bunch of ammunition or something and you literally have the option to space drop these things wherever you want as long as you can get them up there getting them down is relatively is relatively easy. What What are the more outlandish things which people are talking about? Honestly, if uh, if you can think of it, someone someone else has thought of it and is trying to operationalize it in uh, in space. Um, we we went to see an awesome company, this uh, Cardiff based company, um, Spaceforge, and they are about uh, manufacturing in space. Ultimately, manufacturing um, uh, silicon based chips that you know that sort of stuff in a uh, because zero g zero temperature you know it, 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 you get a much more efficient chip or whatever at the end of it but looking at the tech they are then using and you can imagine in a lockup in cardiff to then re-enter this very you know small i'd say you know smaller than a washing machine sized um satellite and then bring it back to Earth and catch the thing without breaking the payload and everything is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and is there other things with, out there? Yeah, is there things to do with with making chips in a vacuum? Isn't that quite important for some reason? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it's vacuum, gravity, and temperature. Yes. So um, you know, almost perfect in all of those. Not quite, but the uh, utterly brilliant. These guys who uh, who just decide down the pub one day you're going to start a space company doing that. There's another really. A really interesting thing I was reading about the other day, which was um, essentially a solar energy station that you put into orbit. Um, and this sucks up the sun's rays, converts them into a uh, essentially a laser that they then fire down to a, um, a power station on Earth. And the energy within that laser is the power. So um, we could do with it's not a terrestrial. Yeah, now, it's not a terrestrial prices are going power up, station. Yeah. Now that sounds like a that sounds like the most innocent way to describe a destructive space laser. Yeah, don't don't worry about that thing, <laughs> you know, go, going around the globe which fires lasers into the power station. We'll never use that on your country. That thing that... <laughs> it's a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that, that's very what? sneaky. Why has it got a skull and crossbow? <laughs> I know it looks like a death. Star. Looks like a death ray, but it's absolutely not a death ray. It's absolutely not one of them. Are we uh, are we the baddies? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, now, hey, listen. I think um, I'm funny you used to say that, JB. I think it was a Chinese patent, that particular one. I can only imagine it was. 
I was going to ask, Goddard, just the, I know you said, you know, in terms of the number of satellites up there, you know, the 1,500, um, you know, launched. When did you say the 1,500 launched in the last? Yeah, so um, 3,000 last, so 1,500 in 2020, yeah. then 3,000 last year. So it's exponential at the moment, primarily because of two companies, OneWeb, which is a British company that um, is in low Earth orbit, so around about 1,000 kilometers uh, above us. Um, I've got a, well, 390 at the moment, going up to 650 satellites, which provide broadband to rural areas. Um, and Elon Musk, uh, Elon Musk has got another company called Starlink, and they've currently got in the order of 2,000 satellites up there. Wow. Um, doing exactly the same thing. So 42 went up today alone. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There was a there was a Falcon 9 launch today out of uh, Cape Canaveral, which I saw one when we were out there just before Christmas, um, which was amazing, actually, because you could see that at night you could see it um, reaching, you know, one of the, the burns into orbit. And you see the you can just see the booster separate as it uh, as it comes away. And you've all seen on YouTube just how amazing it is when those boosters then go and land on the uh, uh, on the um drone ships that they have and then they bring them back in um when we saw that falcon 9 on the pad the booster side of it was just a good bit of patina as you would say uh parko with the uh, on the side of this rocket um because this particular one i think had been used five times um so just amazing that's how they brought the launch down i think it was something like twenty thousand dollars a kilo to get into space for years but then in the last few years, it's down to $2,000 a kilo. And they reckon the next five years, it'll be down to $200 a kilo. That's incredible, wow. isn't it? Hey, now, um, now that, so with all of those satellites going up there, and I know, you know, space is pretty vast. I get that. But uh, given that uh, are we, uh, is there a danger of saturation? And, you know, we've got all these spaceports talking about, you know, launching all these different satellites for different reasons. How many do we need up there and for what? And, you know, is it going to keep exponentially expanding or is it going to, you know, settle at, right, well, we only need 1,500 a year now. And, and where are those 1,500 a year going to go? I guess, you know, there's different altitudes, different orbits, et cetera. How, how is that all coordinated? Because it must logistically become quite tricky. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And the... Um... You know, certainly, so another orbit, a stationary orbit, so that's the one 36,000 kilometres away that all of the, so your Sky TV, there's an Astra satellite sat out there doing your Sky TV, and, and they are orbiting at the same speed that the Earth is rotating. And so the, um, so the um, you know, these ones that are 36,000 kilometres away, actually, there are. Yes. Yes. I don't I know. Again. <laughs> Should we move on to the next question? So, so, so have we not recorded any of this? I, I, I did think it, it sounded a bit tinny today, question Doug, because there is a lot of stuff going up there. And space at the moment is governed by the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. Um, and I don't think they thought of a huge amount of this. So in America, it's the FCC um, that governs, I think it's the FCC, uh, that governs what satellites are, uh, are going up. But... Um, geostationary earth orbit 36,000 kilometers away which all, all the communication satellites are there is there's a uh, united nations um uh subcommittee that governs who goes where so there are orbital slots that you have to um bid for and then get and once you've got the slot you know some of those satellites have been up there 20 plus years um and so that is a biggie in terms of uh of how people 
especially so if you take China at the moment, so China's late to the space race, if you like, but are doing a flipping good job right now in terms of what they're putting up. Last year, they launched more, 52 launches compared to America's uh, 49. That's the first time America has ever been overmatched in terms of space launches. Um, And so an awful lot of commercial satellites that sit over the top of China. Now, China obviously want to get in on the game as well. So how that works and, uh, and how that's governed is really, really important. And the, I mentioned the movie Gravity earlier. Um, that is a big deal, the, the Kessler effect, which is that knock-on effect of debris essentially creating um, a huge colander of debris uh, around the Earth. Um, the effects of that could get worse or would get worse the more satellites you put in orbit. So a lot of the manufacturers, uh, a lot of the, uh, the operators now do an awful lot of um, mathematical modeling just to understand that the ones that they put up aren't going to be the problem. But you can imagine, compared to air traffic, though, where we're all compressed into essentially zero to 40,000 feet, what I'm talking about here is uh, if if the lowest Earth orbit um, is around about 100 kilometers or so, it's about it, it, it is about it's probably about 200 kilometers, but you're going all the way out to 36,000. So there's actually quite a lot of room out there, as you said, the place is vast. But we're going out beyond that as well. You know, so the did you see the James Webb telescope, the, yep. the successor to the Hubble? Absolutely amazing. If you get a chance to look at the miracles that have gone on to get that thing up and running, it's gone to a thing called the, uh, the Lagrange Point 2, which is just a point where the, the sort of gravity of the moon and the Earth cancel each other out a, a little bit. Um, that's 1.2 million miles away. Um, the Chinese have got uh, a rover on the moon at the moment, and people will be mining on the moon before you know it. So, uh, you know, corridors going out to the moon and back. And as JB mentioned, you know, that sort of storage in space, there's a lot of people looking at being able to dock, get their supplies up, do whatever, and then onto the moon, back to the moon, back to the same thing, unload, and then uh, and then come back to Earth. So, I mean, it's not science, it, it is not science fiction anymore, but... It's amazing how if you look back over the last 80 years worth, 90, 100 years worth of science fiction, how much stuff is actually happening that was in there. What What, do they do? So, you know, I guess, I mean, I I don't know whether it's tactical, you know, why Russia has fired that missile up to destroy that satellite and the debris that that's then created. But given that, you know, there must be, you know, in the same way your car runs out of steam and, uh, and becomes defunct, uh, and I'm sure we, you know, everyone's heard, you know, space junk floating around out there. At what point does that then become, you know, how many defunct satellites are there now out there that are, that are just floating around the Earth? And is there, you know, is it going to be the the oceans? I don't want to get too deep, but you know, the, the you know the ocean of of the future with plastic bottles and us, you know, going with plastic in the oceans, killing everything. You know, we're surrounded by defunct satellites, and how do we? now get rid of them well it's a really interesting question a really good analogy as well and um an awful lot of companies right now are looking at debris removal because you pay for that service um and uh, and people are going to earn a lot of money doing it if they can come up with it so there's some really interesting technology around and um uh there's a uk company actually uh, you know initially headquartered in japan but astroscale um, and they're currently at the moment demonstrating that they can essentially formate and then dock on a bit of space junk and then deorbit it. So 
the good thing about low Earth orbit is that stuff decays back towards the Earth and then will burn up at some particular point. When you get to medium Earth orbit around 20,000 kilometers and when you get to uh, geostationary orbit 36,000 kilometers, it's less so. So you have to go and grab stuff and take it out in that geostationary orbit, there's actually a graveyard slot beyond that where it's uh, it's a legal requirement for those satellites with the last bit of fuel that they have to increase their orbit altitude to get into the graveyard slot so they're out of the way of that uh, of that particular one. And I'm sure you'll see in the future that there will be, you know, little wally type things, you know, up there grabbing spacecraft and, and bringing them back down so they burn up in the atmosphere. The good thing is that mostly most of the stuff up there when it does re-enter burns up so um hey, you know, you us, how, uh, how high up is the um space station that's around 500 kilometers um the international space station and you might have heard there was some really good stuff on twitter actually of uh um the the day after or the morning of the after it happened the the russian missile test um the NASA transmission up to the space station, which did have a couple of cosmonauts on it as well, um, having to get into their escape pods, essentially, um, because uh, they thought the debris field was going to come near them. And they didn't. Uh, and those yeah. those pods are more heavily armored, if you like, than the actual space station itself. Wow. Yeah. The Pinnick. Hey, uh, so. Um, I'm going to I think, well, certainly uh, for uh, Jim. Uh, that wanted to know about uh, Goddard's and to uh, Matt Key. Hopefully that's answered your uh, question about uh, about Goddard's. But uh, it's time for Parkinson now. So Dil Patel, who I think actually with the amount of questions that he sent is one of our two avid listeners. One of the two listeners. He's one of the two, yeah. Uh, question for Parkinson. Here we go. Uh, what was it like going from flying a fourth gen two-seat uh, – oh, it's a bit derogatory – uh, yeah. He says it's a fighter, uh, yeah, maybe, to the single-seat F-16. So going from an F-3, fourth-gen, two-seat sort of uh, interceptor, wasn't it, Parky? Uh, to, yeah. to your single-seat, uh, full-up F-16 fighter. Um, and were there any times when you thought, I wish I had a nav or a wizzo here with me right now? Ah. Um, yeah, great question. It, I mean, bizarrely, the tornado f3 that i was flying would have been newer than the dutch f16s which were kind of like i guess 1982 and i think our f3s were sort of 86 onwards which is uh, amazing i mean the f16 was just as god as will say just so so advanced and just all, all boys bang on about their exchanges obviously you didn't do one dunk but the and and, and love the aircraft that they flew and you know we, we've heard about the, the boys on the mirage exchange and f18 and f all sorts of Great jobs, but I absolutely would argue vehemently that the the F sixteen was just the most unbelievable jet, and uh, it was awesome going from the uh, the F three was you know it was an interceptor and it did certain things well, um, and you know at the end of it when it had Amram to link, what's that running yeah, away, running away. <laughs> sitting a it long was, way uh, behind the line. Yeah, it, it was, you know, and it was obviously air defence only. The uh, the F sixteen squadron I flew with was half half air defence, half mud. So you know, it was just completely swing roll. We did everything, um, and it was single seat. And the actual jet itself was just worlds apart from uh, from an F three. The 
the, the boys that have flown tornado, like you had a trip, I mean, you got us in a GR4, I guess, but the, the controls are spongy, might be a, a derogatory way, but they are, they are not uh, super um, light and they are not, you know, you have to put fairly big inputs in really to, uh, it's only doing the F3 display. Whereas the F-16 is extraordinary. You know, it, it is just side stick and you move the thing millimetres and you'll, you'll pull 9G. So, you know, jumping into the F-16, I will remember, you know, just, just you know, the first trip, the first solos that you do some really climbs. Just the performance of the thing, it it was amazing. Um, I, I did it over um, Bosnia sort of operationally and, and it was great. It was so well, the cockpit was so well Design that genuinely, you know, I, I was sold on the single seat way. It was, uh, it was great. You definitely were busy, you know, if you were down low level, you know, we, it was um, out in uh, Goose Bay. You, you were down at 100 foot flying, and you know, if you if you're in the muddy package, you would be looking at your radar and uh, and flying at 100 feet. You were definitely up there, you know, with your workload, and and it was all about your comfort level and maybe easing it up at times. But um, really interesting, really. Just a, a fabulous jet to have flown. The weird thing for me was I went F3, F16, then I went back to the F3, uh, and that was uh, that. That was almost a, an equal shock because you know you just get muscle memory on how agile the uh, the F16 was, and uh, as I mentioned, you know jumping back into the F3, just the controls felt like you know slush uh, until you get used to them. But then after a while, you know you do get used to them, and. Uh, uh, and then I you know, displayed the F3, and I, I loved displaying the F3. It was brilliant. And certain things the F3 did, you know, an F16 at, at 500 knots, you know, you knew you were, it was, you know, noisy, rattling, and, and it, you know, you felt you were going fast, whereas the Tornado was ridiculous. At, at 600, it was super quiet and, and very slippery. So there were certain bits that it did particularly well, but uh, you know, the Viper was uh, it was just brilliant, and, I guess, God, as you were, you know, you had the same from the Harrier to the uh, to the F-16 in so many ways. It must have been uh, just just worlds apart. Yeah, it definitely was. The, um, I mean, the interesting thing you talk about there was the the Wizzo bit because um, it was only uh, – so the only time I flew in the front of the GR4 was in the simulator. But having an experienced Wizzo in the back made up for the fact that I didn't know anything about the aeroplane. And um, I, I just found it so much easier – you know, with an experienced individual in the back, I, you know, I clearly have no idea what that m must have been like on an air defence type fighter. But um, I guess if you got the wrong person or you two didn't sort of come together as a team, it would have been a hindrance. But having only flown on my own, but um, I do remember on the F-16, and they said that I do it. I don't know whether you did on your first episode, on your first um, flight. But was that sort of slight overcorrection as you come down on finals where, you know, it's to do with the side stick and, and you soon get used to it. But, you know, you're like, oh, I'm never going to be able to fly this flipping thing. Oh, funny enough, I can fly it. And it's really easy. And you're right. I love that airplane. Into They had absolutely, well, that's why it's still flying today. They had absolutely everything correct on it. But, um, you know, we had a, I mean, you'll remember this, Parky. We had a ton of different people from a ton of different airplanes come over to Typhoon, so from two-seat into uh, into single-seat. And um, some people struggled a little bit, you know, because they were used to having a, a Nampar Wizzo in the back, and uh, some people just, you know, picked it up and, and, and went with it straight away. So kind of horses for courses, but I think both of us have definitely been on single-seat missions where we're utterly maxed out, although you've probably been on a F3 mission where you're utterly maxed out as well. 
Yeah, yeah. And then, the, you know, as you night when it's getting very busy and you're doing stuff to have a guy, you know, essentially operating the radar was was great. And, and you know, when the two seat crew worked well, it, it was definitely up there. But, uh, you know, and so much was to do with how well the you know cockpit was designed. And and uh, but despite everything, you know, there will be times there's no way any typhoon mate will ever say he's not been maxed whilst flying that thing you know it, it can happen and uh, that's often the skill set is just to fly the thing and and uh and, yeah, and prioritizing the capacity it? you've got then then do whatever else needs to be done we've got time for one more time well uh, yeah actually actually we have got time for uh, four more and one more will be from me because i've got a little bit of a quiz question for you all and if you get it quickly like. then we might have one uh, one more after that go on hit us with a quiz so i was reading an article as i'm apt to do the other day and I found out a fascinating fact. I was thinking, I wonder if the boys know this because it seems rather obscure. Does anyone know what aircraft was the last was the last RAF aircraft to actually score an air to air kill with an RAF pilot inside it? And for extra points, can you give me the date and what it shot down? Well, there, there was the Phantom that shot down the Jaguar. There was, but that is not that doesn't count because that was an accident. But that was okay. over Germany, was it not? Yeah, that was. That was, yeah, yeah. So what was so just so where is it? Where's it got to be? Did you say there was, there had to be a location? No, 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 it's just the last RAF aircraft flown by an RAF pilot to shoot down an enemy combatant. Uh, oh, enemy combatant. All right, because there was one recently uh, with a typhoon, but um, the, the the boys in the Falklands didn't get any. Um, the Sea Harriers got the kills. Were there any? Yeah, no. The, uh, well, did um, uh, who's the one who got four kills? Uh, Sharky Ward, the Virgin. No. Yeah, but that's in a Sea Harriers. That doesn't count, does uh, it? Uh, yep, yeah, that's uh, Fleet Air Arm. Yeah, yeah, Fleet yeah, Air Arm. I think someone. I think someone in a GR three did did shoot someone down in the Falklands. Did they? How about F eighty six in Korea. I think it's got to be. It's got to be after that. I think it could be the Falklands. Well, combatant. I mean, on JB. Yeah. Are, we, are we warm, JB? You're not. Uh, the Falklands is not warm. I, the warmest is Goddard's, actually. Oh, hang on. It's, no, that was Navy, wasn't it? Because there was a, was it a sea fury kill in Korea. Um, I imagine there must have been a few kills in Korea. The meteors. Is, did we have sabres then? But it yeah, was, we, we, we flew sabres as well. But it what was, about it was hunters a, as well? Did hunters get anything? Oh, hunter. There's one. Mm. Would there have been any air-to-air kills in Oman? Aiden. 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 Interesting. Well, there was a rumoured kill, but this isn't it. There's a rumoured kill. A javelin shot down an Indonesian transport aircraft, apparently, but that was never confirmed. So that would be one. Never Uh, heard that. Yeah, Aiden is not it. Do you want me to give you the type of aircraft that that it was? Yeah, Yeah, go on. Spitfire. Now, what was the year? No way. Well, didn't Spitfire go out of service in... It was the 50s, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. Unless unless it was an RAF pilot on exchange somewhere, like India or something like that. Nope. It was not on exchange. It was an RAF aircraft in an RAF squadron, and he's an RAF pilot. Wow, in the 50s. But it was clearly post-World War II. Yes, it was. 
<laughs> Our listeners now will be shouting. They'll be shouting at the. Uh, yeah, they're, 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 no, go on, JB, put us at their iPod. Put us at the misery. It was 1948. It was a Spitfire that shot down an Egyptian. Would you, would you like to care? Yes. Go on. No, I was what, an Egyptian MiG-15? No, it was a, an Egyptian Spitfire. It's one of the few engagements where the aircraft had shot down another aircraft of the same type or even the same manufacturer. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That is a good that is a I like that one. It's a pub quiz. Is, yeah, is, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this. I thought, that can't be right. Because, you know, there are loads of kills from loads of RAF types, but not from RAF pilots. And also RAF pilots who've been flying el- el- elsewhere. So, like, the Nats had loads of kills in, I think, Indian Air Force Service over MiGs in, Pakistan, in, in Pakistani Air Force. I think the Hunts, yeah, had, yeah. Uh, Hunts had a few kills, but yeah. not for us. So um, why was the RAF fighting the Egyptians? I believe, and I could have this wrong, is it not the... Deployed to Israel. Is, yeah, the Israelis. So we were fighting for the Israelis, were we, in support? Well, well so that was the yes. creation, wasn't it, 48, that Israel... Um, yeah, it started existing. Yes. So I think they were flying out of Palestine at that point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, correct. So oh, not politically sensitive at all. But what what a great little start. <laughs> Amazing. Blimey. Right. That is well, good. Uh, on that we, bombshell. Yeah. Have we got time for one more? or? Uh, we're one hour 11 in and I've got to edit out a load of snivels. So no, that's the answer. No, we don't. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, in case anyone's listening, we tried our hardest to go back to our roots of uh, poor quality <laughs> communications. Yes. a minor faff on the, on here, but you know that makes you love us more. Exactly. <laughs> hey, well, let's try to get one one more in before the RAF play some serious in, inter-services rugby so we can have a little bit more RAF r- rugby chat, because I enjoyed that, despite what everyone else felt about it. Well, Another podcast, you mean? Yeah, because yes. we've got our inter-services games... In uh, in March, um, and um, I think it'd be brilliant. You know, we got a, we got a good, definitely a good chance on the women's side, and uh, I think the uh, it'd be interesting with the men's whole new squad. But um, yeah, we can talk about it next time. Exactly. Well, who knows? We could even do a podcast there. Goddess, tell us where we can find and contact the pilot episodes pod, please. A pilot episode. Many of you will notice that I'm on a Twitter holiday at the moment. Um, essentially, a social media holiday. It's so refreshing. But, um, yeah, pilot episode pod, and uh, all of you have got your own Twitter handles, except Parky, who has Lego Parky, at Lego Parky, um, who we don't st- – I still don't know who at Lego Parky actually is. Disappeared. But, it's um, a shame. Oh, they're not on there anymore. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> it is mentioned on those questions, actually, Godders, that uh, I'm just trying to scroll through to see where it is. It's something – hang on, stand by, stand by. Uh, oh, yeah. Why have you banned at Goddess Twit from Twitter? Has he been stationed at RAF Luton? <laughs> RAF Luton. R- the famous R- RAF Luton. It, uh, that's yeah, from, that's that's from at Andy B UK. Hey, just before right, we go. So, so very quickly. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the reason, shall I? Yes. It's quite funny. Have you been trolled? Yeah. So when I, when I got the Space Command job, I, um, in my own Twitter manner, tweeted, uh, you know, delighted. Uh, I retweeted it, got delighted to um, uh, get the job, an you know, amazing opportunity. Have been watching Netflix Space Force for uh, for top tips. I thought, yeah, that's me, tweeted it. 
no one's anything on Twitter. The next thing I know, Daily Mail Online has got like a multiple page online story about me with the big headline, <laughs> new UK space commander um, uh, announced, says he's watching Netflix for tips. And at that moment, I thought, you know, I like being me on Twitter. And if people are going to take some of my um, tweets literally, and I don't want to be that person who just puts out bland tweets, I'll just stop for a little bit. Yes. And um, it, I, so I stopped, and it's quite nice. Must have been a slow news day, Goddard. Well, it must have been. But um, it's probably I'm... still there on the Daily Mail website. You can go and have a look. I'm surprised <laughs> you didn't p- pick it up when you tweeted to infinity and beyond after getting the job. But, you know, <laughs> I guess they're selective, aren't they? No, exactly. But, um, yeah, uh, you know, it's a shame not to be on there because I did enjoy it. Uh, I'll probably be on there again soon, one day. But, um, yeah, it's quite handy being anonymous at the moment. Ah, excellent. Right, gents. Well, it's been a pleasure as always. And we will catch up again, hopefully... March, I would say. You think March? Yeah, let's go February. Yeah, no, maybe February. February. Well, it's February, so yeah, okay, yeah, fine, fine, fine. Let's, let's, let, we, I know we are in February, but maybe the end of. Let's end be of February. Yes, let's yeah. do it. Excellent. Hope, All right, gents, ha- have a lovely evening. Hope you get over your cold, JP. I will. Bye bye. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.